Hello and welcome to episode nine of Turning the Goldfields Green. You're listening to Main FM 94.9. And today we have a show all about art and the environment. And I've got three guests. I have Ilka White and Dale Cox, who are both artists in a show up at Lot 19 at the moment, which is called Upwilling. And I also have Brody Ellis, who was the curator of that show. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so... At the start of every show, I always do an acknowledgement of country, and I've heard that I was at it the opening, but I missed all the speeches, unfortunately. So I've heard that there was an excellent acknowledgement of country at the opening of the exhibition last Friday. Jodie Newcomb spoke to open the show, yeah, and she she spoke these words really beautifully, and I'll repeat what she said. I'd like to acknowledge the Jajwarong and pay my respects to elders, past, present, and future. We have much to learn from their continued care of this country over many millennia, and I believe we will not survive climate change if we do not elevate Indigenous knowledge and ways of being to the highest level of decision-making globally. That is an excellent acknowledgement of country. Thank you. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. All right. Well, with the three of you here, I think I'm going to start with you, Brody. You curated the show. How did how did it come about? What made you think of, of this particular? Um, I guess I'm always thinking about it. I've never stopped thinking about it. Have you done other shows like it in the past? Is this part of a lifetime, a well, life's uh, work kind yeah, of? Yeah, it is actually. So as an artist, I've always worked across these sorts of issues and tried to speak about climate change, but also things, you know, specifically like weighing up there's always a bit of weighing up between development development of culture and and the cost to the environment so I'm interested in technology I'm I'm a video artist myself so I use technology on a daily basis and yet you know I, I went and made a work about the super pit in Kalgoorlie because the scale of mining in Australia is um, very hard for any of us to fathom and it seems like all our resources are just being sold to the highest bidder and surely there's a better way that things can be done. So um, in terms of this exhibition though specifically I actually got approached by Mark Anstey the director of Lot 19 to curate a show. I do work at Castlemaine Art Museum as the assistant manager and he approached me to see what whether I'd be interested in what sort of themes I might like to discuss in curating a show. So I said to him, I'm only going to do it if it's about climate change. There's no other more pressing issue. And to me, that having a, plat- a public platform to discuss these ideas is just so important. So it is mm. weighted quite heavily. Mark and I talked a lot back and forth over a couple of weeks about what direction we wanted to go in with the discussion as well. So we didn't want everything in the show to be about the current situation and very doom and gloom. Yeah. There's, there's so many works out there that that acknowledge that. We wanted to curate a show with artists that are, are willing to also look at, look to solutions and and networks and 
bringing people together in the community and how we're all going to get on with dealing with this situation. So, you know, there's there's Dale Cox sitting next to me and his work studies fire and very, um, very relevant this yeah, season. <laughs> that's right. And then there's all sorts of science running through so how did many you, of the other artists' works. Yeah, go ahead. How did you pick your artists? Did you just know immediately kind of a few of them that you really wanted in and and then found the rest or did you kind of have a clear idea from the start who you'd invite? Um, really, I, I we cast a broad net and whittled it down. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many artists in Castlemaine and... It, it was a really nice, you know, organic kind of discussion where people's work just did sort of float to the top and relationships began to form between the different artists and, and their practices. So some artists, Mark Anstey is more familiar with their practice than I am and other artists, I'd say I know a little bit more about what they're doing right now. So we really discussed a, a lot about what we knew people were doing at that time Mm. and then um, Mark entrusted me with the task of getting together with the artists and and visiting their studios and taking it from there. Great. And what was that process? I I can imagine that would be quite enjoyable, (laughs) just meeting up with artists and having a chat about their work. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the best part of the job. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, getting – and and you feel so honoured when you get to go into an artist's studio. Mm. You know, it's such a a private and special place. And to have some time alone to, you know, to talk through ideas – Mm. Um, is yeah it's it's um it's a joy and a privilege yeah Yeah. and the title of the show is upwelling that's right uh how did you come up with that name and what does it mean for you well I came up with that name because really I wanted the exhibition to mix together knowledge old and new so you know I, I guess I you know I had solar power growing up as a child in the early 80s and it's been around for a long time and there's you know so many things that we can do nowadays to ease our footprint on the environment and um, more and more these sorts of things are becoming quite mainstream and then there's all sorts of really old knowledge about our our place in the you know the greater network of of nature and and knowing and understanding how how we can tend to the needs of other creatures and plants and animals and encourage life, I think is a really important old knowledge, arguably, you know. Mm. So, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons that um, that title seemed appropriate. Upwelling technically is um, when the winds, like the, the sea winds come through and stir up the deeper the deeper levels of the ocean and bring to the surface all those nutrients that have fallen down to the bottom of the ocean and they get that they get pushed up to the surface so it's an intermingling of those old nutritious you know healthy things with Mm. all the stuff on the surface so there's a lot on the surface (laughs) at the moment (laughs) Um, in our world there's so much on the surface so to bring something deeper and I think you know art's a great way of talking about deeper things Mm, Um, yeah I hope that was clear for the listeners (laughs) yeah I think so so we will get into a conversation about the role of art in 
this period of time when things seem so critical around the environment and what art can do to communicate with people and motivate people or right you know get people in touch with certain emotional landscapes but first of all let's have a chat to Ilka and Dale about their particular pieces I'll start with Ilka maybe uh yours speaking of old things that have sort of come back up you use textiles in a most beautiful way or fabrics and you've got the most exquisite sort of stitched work and a three-dimensional sculpture can you explain for the listeners what your works are in this show and maybe what you were thinking as you were making them? Mm. Well, their work, it, the work in the show is from a little while ago now, in fact, three different periods. And the sculptural one you just referred to, it really does draw, I guess, on that old knowledge because it's a coiled work. And, and coil basketry is, as you know, really widespread throughout Indigenous Australia and, and in Southern Australia particularly around, you know, South Australia through Victoria amazing amazing basketry using that technique just this the level of skill and understanding of material and and also the integration of those works in daily life and the way that those skills were passed on down and down and down and and keep on and it's still being passed on that's integral to the work for me I think any choice of materials is you know it's usually going to speak the materials themselves speak and the technique that you choose to use speaks but this um this piece is quite small it's only about 45 centimeters long but it's a coiled work that grew out of a walk that I took with a bunch of artists down on the great southwest walk so from Portland inland through the Kabobini forest down through the, along the Glenelg river and, and back along the capes and bays of Discovery Bay and the coast and it's amazing country on the way back along the coast, I found on the beach a, a beautiful piece of white calcium tube-like uh, mystery, <laughs> which uh, I didn't understand, and I, but I gathered that it was the, the residue of a sandworm. So it was a casting, I guess, of, of a journey. So what I loved was the, the journey, <laughs> just witnessing... Actually, John would call this a fossil trace. John Wolseley, was, we were talking about fossil traces being artefacts that are left after um, something's lived. Mm. You can find them in miniature and you can find them in a macrocosm, big, big escarations of the landscape that, that record geological events. But this little journey that was left behind, you know, the, the, the tunnel that was left behind was extraordinary, not just for its shape, but also for the fact that it seemed to have these hairs growing out of the end of it, but they were brittle, white and brittle, like calcium. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And I think there's so much we don't understand. And I, I'm really grateful for that, because <laughs> I think it's really important that we remember that we don't know everything. And I think human beings have fallen into that trap. And that's partly what's got us into this trouble. So it's about, it's about also all the subtle forces that direct where we go, what we do, the choices we make. We, we're not even f conscious of what those forces are, you know. <laughs> what makes any of us go this way, that way or, you know, straight ahead. And, and yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's a work that responded to finding that small thing and from that having this awareness of the much, much larger situation that we find ourselves you know miraculously on this planet and conscious and attentive yeah it was an I, I was attracted to that work because it's so um, 
sort of alive-ish and it looks like a giant worm sort of all twisted on itself a bit with some sort of mouthpiece <laughs> <laughs> that sort of is a bit of a focus but so what did how how is it made what is it made of it's made of marlin fishing line it was a coastal piece i think i found some there's a lot of marine debris like fishing debris from the industry on the coast carmel wallace who walked with us was collecting all sorts of rubbish (laughs) plastics and cray pot throats and things on that journey to make work around but yes i i spun I coated the fishing line in spinning terminology. It's called a coarse spun yarn. I coated it linen, cotton, and a mix of different threads in the colours of the sand. So, you know, creams and tans and biscuits and beiges. Yeah, coated. So on a spinning wheel, I attached the marlin line and then I turned the wheel to coat to spin and cover. So you don't see any of that nylon but it's covered in this other, these other threads, very fine threads. But I kept blending the different colours so that it kept changing as it goes. Because I, I sort of assume that's what happens with the worm. It's, it's eating something and extruding something and whatever it eats, it's, gonna, it's diet's going to change in the course mm. of its journey. So, yeah. And then, and then, so then I have a coated, fairly rigid thread, a bit like a guitar string. It won't fold. It, it will spring back. Mm. And then I um, coil it. So I just turn it on, a, a, make a circle and then stitch stitch the coil to itself, building mm. up like a coil pot, like yeah. a pinch pot, but many, 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 many stitches um, round and round and round. And as I go, you, you know, it's very easy to build a tube, yeah. but as I go, I wanted it to twist and turn. So then I had to work in shaping yeah. a little bit like you would if you were knitting partial rows or dropping the core into the centre mm-hmm. and then stitching back in a full round and then just doing a half round. But it was really important to me that the core did not travel through the middle of the piece. Mm. You wouldn't have known from the outside, but I would have known. (laughs) And the piece is about the journey. So I absolutely had to have a clear way all the way through the tunnel. Um, And it would have been much easier to put a piece of armature wire in there and then twist it to whatever shape I wanted. (laughs) But I think I'm also a bit of, I'm really, really informed by textile, you know, old textile techniques. And so, and the skill involved in those and to come back to Indigenous culture, just how widespread that is. So I wanted that to be a part of the work as well. That is um, an amazing story of how that is made. I first heard of you many years ago, Ilka. <laughs> About 20 years ago, I was an art student in Melbourne and you had an exhibition at Craft Victoria. And we all went up there and we were like, oh, who's this person, Ilka White? She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and to hear the amount of skill and effort that you put into a creation of something like that when other techniques would have been much quicker and easier is it I think a testament to the level of your craftsmanship and and the depth of the thought that you put into the creation of a piece which is a beautiful thing thank you (laughs) so you had two other pieces in there can you yeah there's a a there's an embroidered piece and a, a short video and the embroidered work is a collaboration with a friend called Chris Sprague who sent me a well he actually sent just by an, a, a photograph as an attachment in an email a drawing that he'd made I think in biro on the back of an envelope while he was in a Buddhist teaching it, it just struck me as sort of universal and deep and wide-ranging and um, it made me think of the universe that it's, yeah. it's, so it's on a piece of blue cloth and it's a yellow or golden thread that's been stitched in almost a mandala pattern like it's a, a circular pattern of of connecting lines really that felt a bit universal yeah I might read you what Chris wrote to me when I asked him for more about the work in language it's you know the works made in response to the concept of 
Pratitya Samutpada, which is awkwardly translated as dependent origination, which has connotations of interpenetration, interdependence and interconnectedness. The idea that nothing can be isolated from anything else. And once again, you know, on the macro scale and the micro scale, that's so true. Yeah. And I think that's what... I think that's another thing we just have to remember on a daily basis because we, we've fallen into this trap of thinking that humans are somehow separate mm. from the rest of the world and somehow more clever and, and more... And <laughs> that each of our actions doesn't have an impact beyond us. We can just choose to do that yeah. one thing and we're so little it doesn't really matter without realising that we're part of this much bigger picture which is the whole of humanity's impact on the planet. That's right and I think that's, that's what moves me on a daily basis is remembering that. Mm. And to come back to what Chris said, he says individuality, which is the bedrock of our common worldview, is a kind of optical illusion of the egoic mind. Etymologically, an individual is something which cannot be divided, an indivisible unit. A freestanding individual, though, with solid boundaries, setting him or herself apart from the environment, as much as we take this for granted, is a pure linguistic fiction. And there's no relationship in reality to you know what we what we now know in the slightest you know if we really think deeply about it but that our language enforces this fiction upon us at every turn is really problematic Mm. so i think got a really really strong interest in language and i think in visual language as well and that's what i speak about materials carrying their own Mm. meaning yeah i think especially in the west we've got a very strong focus on the individual i think especially since the american kind of entrepreneur ideal of like anyone can make it it's not about being in a community and helping your whole community rise or fall it's about you as an individual making your millions of dollars and that's some kind of dream that's arisen in our culture Mm. (laughs) and it is only I mean only in our culture it's very widespread globally now but it's it wasn't always the case it's pretty recent really I think in the history of humankind that we've fallen into that you know along the wayside the individual is more important than yeah everything else individual striving and a a forgetfulness about the interconnectedness of all things Mm. and so that piece you hand stitched i imagine i did the background is a a photograph during that similar a similar period to that chris also sent me a photograph he'd taken in the forest when he was on retreat up in queensland and it was of the moon at night and he'd moved the camera so it looked like the moon was bleeding there was a, bl- a blur. The background, the sky was deep blue, this amazing indigo kind of luminescent blue. And you could see the blurred outline of trees and then the moon just sort of bleeding through the middle. So it, the piece is a bit of a conflation of the two attachments in that correspondence, the the drawing and the, the, the sky. I didn't include the moon. I put I superimposed the drawing. Mm. So it's, it's stitched, yeah, hand-stitched onto a digitally printed image of the sky I, I actually had to get another image of the sky <laughs> without the moon yeah yeah so it's high tech and low tech combined digital mm. printing and hand stitching you know hand embroidery in silk which is what the show's all about upwelling the the old technologies and the new all mingling mm. and coming to the surface of our consciousness so highly appropriate I would imagine mm. <laughs> and you had one more piece in the show it was the video work yeah, the last the last piece is called Drawing Breath. It's the most recent one, although it's still some years ago. Um, and it came out of walking um, after that walk I referred to with um, on the Great Southwest Walk. I I was during that time drawing in my journal a lot of really close observational drawings of 
leaves and creatures, you know, moorhens and gestural stuff. And like really, really very much the English naturalist type of recording. And I, I, I grew tired of that. I, it wasn't meeting what I wanted to record. And, it, and I just didn't know that it would do the job of trying to explain the, the beauty and the, the epiphany that that walk became for me. And so I really just felt I was becoming more and more frustrated with the visual and I, or the, you know, the physical static. And so I thought, really, what I, all? Well, I sort of felt like what I want to just say to people is just go down there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do justice to this place. Please visit it. Yeah. But beyond that, I thought it has to be. It has to be. I, I feel like I have to make an interpretive dance. <laughs> I have to dance it. I have to, in some way, utilize my body and my breath mm. in this work. And I and I wasn't ready to do that for for walk for that project. But not long after, I was walking Bruny Island coast, and I saw ahead of me a piece. Of something on the sand that when the water came in animated and rippled and then when the water went out it it went still and from a distance I was watching this essentially sort of breathing like you know that the ripple and then the rest and then the ripple and the rest like an exhalation and an inhalation and when I reached it it was a piece of kelp that lay on the sand in an almost like exactly like a map of the lungs like an anatomical drawing <laughs> of the lungs and so in that moment of recognition of the lung form and, and the breath, I just was conscious of that, you know, the fact that that ripple, the water lapping in and out, was driven by tides. Tides are driven by the moon. The moon's circling the earth. The earth's circling the sun. You know, it, it just goes once again from the, from the microcosm to the macrocosm and an awareness of our tiny, tiny part in a massive and mysterious universe. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it's about that, about that again, I think. <laughs> Can I just say something yeah. about that work? Yeah, I also feel, Ilka, that that work really helps the viewer understand that there, the, that there isn't much of a division between their body, their physical body and the world. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you draw your breath in that video work, you draw this large semicircle around you and it's so far out, you reach as far out as you can from your body. Mm. And it shows that you're inhaling the world and mm. exhaling the world all mm. the time. Oh, I'm so so glad there's to hear this you beautiful exchange going on there, and and it and it doesn't really have a boundary, mm. does it? No, so. no. And I, I guess what just technically, if you're not able to look at the work for people on radio, I then made a sack of sand. I, I made a, a calico sack. I mounted a, a funnel in it, you know, a cooking funnel, with a hose and a nozzle, and I drew like a fountain pen with sand on a, you know, just a, a concrete, concrete slab. But I, I was basically trying to rec- just just allow the sand to be a record of my in-breath and my out-breath. So you literally folded in half as you breathed out and the stick moved with you as you did that. That's and right. As you breathed in, you stood upright. And the stick's almost as long as, like, you are. It was quite a long stick. Yeah, I had a long bamboo stick and the, the nozzle was mounted at the end of mm. it. So I was, I was exaggerating the breath, but well, rather I was exaggerating my gesture of mm. the breath. I didn't want to exaggerate the breath itself, but mm. I just made my body move as far as it would on the exhalation and back through me and un- under between my legs often, yeah. the inhalation. Yeah. yeah. And it resulted in a very delicate, it looked almost like a stitched work it actually reminded me of your other work where it's like this beautiful delicate lines moving in and out of each other and yeah it was it's lovely yeah thanks I, I, it was really important to me that I didn't wasn't depicting mm. anything 
Like I, I, I really had to, if it's not a contradiction, I worked hard <laughs> not to be in control yeah. of the aesthetic of the work, yeah. like I, of the residu- residual drawing. I didn't want to be representational with the drawing. No. I wanted it to be like the sand casting. I wanted it to be, a, you know, a fossil trace, if you like. And in that way, Ilka's work does relate beautifully to the work of Cameron Robbins and he worked with Gilles Lapalou, um, who's a local winemaker, and he's actually made drawings that show the um, CO2 emissions coming out of wine as it's fermenting naturally in a demijon next to a drawing machine. So there's beautiful drawings there as well mm. that are also made not to look like anything but yeah. their nature speaking, you know, yeah. which we're all a part of. That's it. So Cameron Robbins has got a long history of creating machines that will draw and make marks based on the movements that are picked up from either wave or wind or... Solar energy. Solar energy. So it's not controlled by anything other than the forces of nature, which is a brilliant And tidal concept. energy too. Yeah, right. tidal energy as well. Yeah, <laughs> see, there's all the, the reason why these artists are in the show together at the moment is because of the relationships between all of their practices. Yeah. They're a great example of, you know, a really strong network here in Castlemaine mm. where they're, you know, they're inspiring each other, they're feeding off each other's work, they often speak to each other and, yeah. you know, we're all in it together. Speaking of which, let's have a chat to Dale. <laughs> Hi, Dale. G'day there. So you are a painter yeah, Largely. primarily, yeah, I graduated with a degree in painting, printmaking. Yeah, and you've not only got a show at Lot 19 in Castlemaine right now, but you're also being represented by the Australian Galleries in Melbourne at the same time. You're a busy guy. Yeah, freak, freakish, really. <laughs> Two shows, uh, and one informed by the other, which is terrific. It was a good opportunity, actually, because Brodie approached me for this show, and I think she knew well that I had a, a body of work all ready to go for the Melbourne show, However, um, fortunately, I was already working on some uh, uh, digital manipulations of those paintings. Mm. So this opportunity was just perfect uh, for me because I was able to actually uh, show a body of work that was kind of almost there, which was informed very much by my other work. And it was interesting that thread you drew between old and new art practice, Ilka, because feeds beautifully into my own work as well where I'm taking traditionally painted landscapes on canvas my my own work and then importing them into a a software package that allows you to digitally sort of manipulate the the pixels on the image and I've I've animated my own paintings uh, uh, is the easiest way to explain it uh, so that the fires on the landscapes are literally billowing with um, flame and and smoke Mm. And it's very effectively done, I'll say. The animation work is is beautiful. And it, I guess it, it loops, so it yeah. will just repeat itself every 10 it seconds does. or so. It yeah. It's, 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 it's a beautiful, endless sort of... Yeah, well, this software package works beautifully with uh, sort of amorphic sort of chaos like smoke and fire. Didn't look so effective on some of the other techniques and images that I tried. So I think I, I did get quite lucky with the way it actually works so sort of seamlessly with the... Mm. I think with those organic kind of uh, manifestations, it works best. And it was terrific too, because I was able to draw on a body of work that I've produced over nearly 15 years. Um, Some of the paintings I used were from about 2007. 
and right up until the current body of work. And so there's 13 paintings in total that I've manipulated, all, all pertaining to the Australian landscape and, and fire. However, um, pre-Black Saturday, I was painting rather more benign examples of bushfire as something that was, and as we all understand, is an inherent critical part of the Australian ecosystem, ecosystem really. our plants and many of our, our our species are sort of designed to a, and adapted for fire indeed some of them as we know need fire so there's a regenerative healthy quality to fire but of course since uh, black saturday and since all the dire warnings of the scientists and the and the projections of how fires will be exacerbated by climate change the the paintings took on a far more sort of a sinister overtone my latest body of work I've introduced humans for the first time, uh, albeit in the form of a, of a of a skeleton. However, prior to that, I was basically just painting paintings of bushfire. But since Black Saturday, and certainly since the recent summer season, I've really wanted to bring the human element into the into the paintings as well. So your paintings, it's it's interesting because you would have produced them well before this season of fires because your mm. exhibition's ready to go now. So you would have been yep. working on them a long time before. Mm. Do you feel like have you had response, especially from your works, perhaps at the Australian galleries or or even from the show here, from people who like is it more potent now because of the summer that we've had, or is it too raw? <laughs> interesting point, and you're right. Uh, you know, some people would, could prob- you know might even accuse me of going out and starting these fires just for my own hints because uh, they were so um, timely and and I had produced a lot of this work uh, previous to this summer however you know it doesn't take a climate scientist or a genius to to, to know which way the wind's blowing and you know we all know the, the critical tipping points that we're starting to reach now and you can trace a line back to Black Saturday and the Canberra fires and some of these other mega fires that are whipping through the east, southeast of Australia these days as unnaturally fierce. Uh, we've been talking about fire storms and fire um, microclimates and things like that now for a long time. Uh, so all I was really doing was, was, was basically just noting which way the wind was blowing and thinking there's something big will come. Mm. I didn't realise it would come quite so soon. But I was also um, uh, feeling quite despondent about the re-election of the the Liberal National Government sort of late last year or whenever that happened. So I was already kind of um, fearing the worst, I suppose you might say. Mm. And after the Great Barrier Reef, of course, we're hitting all sorts of tipping points now. And my greatest fear is that we're not just hitting these tipping points, but as as the news cycle sort of chugs along and, and as we live our busy lives and, and we're so distracted and so pulled in so many different directions, that these tipping points are being reached and they're being absorbed. They're being absorbed by the popular imagination and they're happening and sort of trailing behind us now. And I can't believe that that we've hitting those points now and we are still in this vexed, ridiculous, bipartisan, you know, uh, politicisation of an event that shouldn't even be up for political debate, you know. And, and, and I'm, I guess that's why my particular response at the moment to climate change isn't, isn't perhaps as um, hopeful or as um, 
uh, uh, I guess I'm, I'm at, I feel like we really are at the pointy end now and, and we need to respond and that lack of action is, is fueling a lot of uh, uh, frustration and, mm. and anger in my, in my current work. Absolutely. All right, well, I think we've reached the point where we will open up the conversation to a, the broader topic of how the arts and climate change and the climate emergency can interact. But first, let's listen to a song that Ilka has suggested called The Lost Words Blessing. you see letting your names take and root and thrive and grow and even as you travel far from heather crag and river may you like the little fisher set the stream alight with glitter may you enter now as otter Without falter into water Look to the sky with care, my love And speak the things you see Let your names take a root And thrive and grow And even as you journey on Past dying stars exploding like the gilded one in flight Leave your little gifts of light And in the dead of night, my darling Find the gleaming eye of starling Like the little aviator Sing your heart to all dark matter So that song that we just heard was The Lost Words Blessing. And Ilka, you recommended that to us. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, it's it's a piece that's made up of lyrics from spells. He doesn't like to call them poems that the writer Robert McFarlane wrote and a group of musicians put together into this project in the UK and it speaks to me of like it brought me to tears when I first heard it because I'd been campaigning locally on petitions and letters to council we were trying to get a declaration of climate emergency which did come through at the end of last year but I was just so I was feeling close to burnout and I was feeling very desperate and Dale it was really moving to hear you speak just then about how you know how dire the situation is and how how devastating it can feel when you know life seems to be the majority of people seem to be going on with business as usual and it's it's I just feel like screaming often mm. and so in that state of despair to hear that song it, it brought me back to remembering for solace to enter back into the wild mm. with care and and have that union mm. yeah so Dale um, speaking of the declaration of climate emergency which the council made last year i believe you spoke at their day at their forum yeah uh, yeah so how was that experience for you um well you it was an to? opportunity wasn't it and and an opportunity i certainly wasn't going to miss um and i spoke as a citizen just as a as a father and someone who has uh, in, has, an, has a heavy investment in the future via my my children and also as a human and as someone who feels culpable and, and also, you know, someone who wants to see and affect change where we can, I think it's really important that these sort of um, councils and things uh, rally together and, and it's a way of sort of galvanising the community and speaking truth to power, that sort of upward idea of moving from the ground up to try and affect change and it was also an opportunity for Castle Maine as a township to stamp its place as a leading municipality in terms of climate action with our children at the climate march and also well, we can hang our heads very proudly up here and yeah. why wouldn't we? Yeah. So uh, just before we went to the song you were talking about that role of you know, the artist almost as a visionary, which artists have always held that role through history um, mm. as perhaps seeing things a bit more clearly than others do before things happen or warning that things will happen or knowing, just sort of giving voice to things that other people might be a bit oblivious to or raising people's awareness or emotional connection to topics. Yeah. Is that what you feel like your role is as an artist a little bit? Yeah, kind of. I mean, artists have always held that mirror up to society and we're always a, a kind of a barometer, I, th I feel, of the times. And, I mean, there just is no larger elephant in the room than climate change. And there is no more urgent, pressing scenario that we find ourselves in. And I don't think it's an artist's obligation, but I think it's an artist's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for artists. And, and I'm certainly not going to miss that opportunity because, uh, you know, there's no esoteric navel-gazing on a dead planet, you know. We need to, <laughs> we need to prioritise the, the things that we're going to inquire about as artists. And yeah. sure, I, I'd love to be looking at and thinking about and making work on any number of other worthy themes and ideas, but I just can't actually put climate change to one side mm. to do that. Yeah, it's an emergency. That's it's, why. <laughs> you know, that's right. It's front and centre and I can't actually think of anything more more important 
And, and I think there's still a lot of work to be done to raise awareness in the public. And that can be done on so many fronts from, you know, the news to media to science to artists. And each voice that is raised, whether they be scientific or artistic, is reaching a different audience and perhaps mm. bringing someone new on board just a little bit more to really believe yeah. that this is what's happening. And not only that, but art, art has a, a unique angle in and, a, and an opportunity for people to... Uh, to address, think about, confront, and look at tricky, difficult concepts. And climate change is one of those concepts that's just so... It's not a human-sized, uh, human-scale problem. It's a, it's a global problem, and so it's hard for individuals sometimes to sort of see where all the parts come together. And, and art's a beautiful way of just drawing threads together and making people see and understand uh, difficult concepts in a in 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 a digestible and 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 a way that they can read and 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 have a dialogue with as they as they look at the art and i also think like other art forms visual arts reach a different part of the the human brain and heart and mind than a dry report from the csiro might do about climate change or a sensationalized article in the newspaper might do or any other way in which we sort of are digesting and absorbing information, I think art affords a, a very, very unique opportunity to engage with the, with, with the problem. Mm. Yeah, Dale, and your work also draws in, you know, lots of other themes at the same time. So in your subject matter, you've got, obviously we've talked about the fires and sort of studies of geology and things like that and... and flora and fauna but I've also seen in your work nods to consumerism and collecting collections and how we value history and you know a real critique of 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 capitalism and consumerist culture going on at the same time so that is something that you might struggle to do in a you know 500 word newspaper exactly. mm. and I think and that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm just thinking of that work of yours, Dale, with is it Queen Victoria? Uh, yes. And and you know the history basically from the from the hem of the dress right up through. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ilka, for pointing that one out. There's a painting in the show which is basically Queen Victoria's black mourning dress that she was sort of made popular in the Victorian era. That she with a great big bustle and. Uh, she almost looks like a, like a kind of a mountain form or something. She was quite a, a short lady, and so it's sort of a dumpy for sort of a form. And I've painted oak trees around the hem of the skirt, and then as you go up the skirt, you have a denuded forest, and then you have uh, the, the, the satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution, the mining, uh, the chimney stacks, the, the smoke sort of billowing. And, and, and then as you go up, you, you, you reach... Uh, civilization with working class cottages and then up into the middle class and then at the top of Queen Victoria's shoulder there's a there's a manor house and then on the top of her hat is the is the church so the, you're right Ilka there's this kind of uh, progression of of Georgian into Victorian kind of civilization and and it was a nod back to this idea that the the carbon based economy uh, really started to kick in with the with that industrial revolution, didn't it? Mm. And I'd been thinking about how that accumulation of CO two in the atmosphere is not anything. Whilst we're seeing the the full ramifications starting to ramp up now, that that's something that's been playing out now for at least two or three hundred years. 
so that painting was my way of acknowledging that climate change is not necessarily, well, it's not a new problem, it's something that we've had in motion now for some time. And yeah, the human element is something that I'm really in, enjoying introducing back into that story of, of, of environment and climate. I think it's pretty significant too that she's in mourning. Correct. Absolutely, she <laughs> is too. Like all of us, she's, she's not individually implicated, but we're all part of it and it, 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 it's as much our burden as it is hers. And, and, and yes, yeah, she is in mourning and she's also a skeleton, mm. Mm. Uh, which I use the device of the skeleton as a, a kind of a unifying um, metaphor for humanity. Obviously, it's, it's, it's mired in that whole overtones of, of of death and morbidity and that that memento mori of the of the skeleton is sort of inherent there anyway but it's also a really useful device just to just to represent all of us mm. it, it is the one commonality that we all have uh, that has a certain uniformity a skeleton could be an old man or a, a young man or a woman of any any extraction or ethnicity over time so mm. That's the prime reason why I started to introduce the skeleton. And it is that classic symbol in the world of painting to represent death, which is what we are facing on a large scale right across the world through all species, not just humanity, mm-hmm. if, if climate change does run away from us. So, Brody, what were some of the things you would note about how these different artists are approaching their practice and the topic of climate change in terms of how they're bringing a message or what they, you know... There's so much research in all of the um, artist's work that's in the show. We haven't talked about Alvin Briggs yet, and he's a a local Indigenous artist who practices pyrography, and he's made these incredibly detailed studies of Indigenous Australian fauna, and they just come to life. They're beautiful. They're so beautiful. So he works on plywood with like a heated wire, at various thicknesses to get different thicknesses of line. Mm. And he literally burns the portrait into the surface of the plywood. And he does so with so much love and care. It's so obvious that he is honouring the creatures that he's portraying. They really just come out of, of the, the surface of the wood and come to life in, right in front of you. I think that... That sort of attention is what we need. <laughs> we need to enact in our everyday lives. It's a beautiful reminder that you know understanding can often begin with observation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Can I just honour Brody's attention in you know, the attentiveness that you've brought to all of our works, and and the thoughtfulness and the way that, in which you combined them. And as you say, there are hundreds of artists around doing incredible work. This is just, you know, one collection, but the way that you've drawn threads between them and the way that the show is hung, how I remember looking through, looking at Alvin's work and through, beside Alvin's work, through the door to Cam's work and the lines that the drawing machine is making from the CO2 from the wine are really quite similar to the sorts of mark making in the pyrography. That's right. Yeah, they're almost like feathers. Yes. I think it's also pretty significant, you know, things more and more keeps coming out of this show for me as I dwell on it. And that just the fact that Alvin is burning those works. (laughs) Yeah, he's burning them, burning the... Mm, But with such 
care and attention. Yeah. Well, and that's Elka, but yeah, I mean, the, this is the thing whenever we get together, the love all starts flowing <laughs> um, around and, you know, and it's mutual and there's so much respect in this group respect for each other's practices and opinions and thoughts and ideas. Um, we also shared text. I took photos of each artist's books that they were reading at the time, books, magazines and texts. And as I went and visited the next artist, I would show them the images that I'd collected. And I actually visited all the artists except for one twice so I looped around and, and fed the information back through the group. And, you know, it, it was amazing to hear how many people had just read that book as well <laughs> or were they had it on their list because they wanted to read it. Can I just say but, that I think the process, the very process that you've gone through as a curator to form this group is indicative of the kind of shift that we need so often in the art world and I have been a visual artist for much of my life myself and I know it quite well there's this heroic egoic kind of like career path of people who want to make it in contemporary art and who want to be the big name artist and but what I think you've done here is drawn people together and you've connected and connected and gone back around and connected again to draw these people together to create this beautiful collection where no one artist stands out as the hero, you know, they're, but they're all sort of amplifying each other. And that's exactly what we need to build in our communities, I think, if we're going to survive what will be our changing climate and and all of the struggles that come with that. That's right, Ali. Good point. I'm glad you made it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And we are all connecting, you know, through the exhibition and through our art practices and through the museum as well. So I'm really looking forward to growing the group. Great. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I should say something about the other artists as well. So there's Zoe Moore, who's made an incredible work called Cross Pollination, from a, a series of works called Cross Pollination 2 and there's two sculptural works in the show and one is the the natural shapes of um, native beehives and there's something really sort of primitive and raw in that and you look at it and you sense health and medicine and, you know, it's a really positive form and there's also a really primitive flower that she apparently copied from a flower that was made at the botany department at Melbourne Uni, you know, one of those um, sort of scientific sculptural replicas but blown up in scale. And so she's linking together, you know, this incredible development of bees and plants and and giving them a nod Puncta Mink also have work in the show um, from a project called River Rights. If you'd like to know more about that, as well as seeing it in the exhibition, you can go to their website and look up River Rights. I'll also, any links to these artists and their projects and to Lot 19, I'll put it in my podcast um, description at the end. Okay, great, Ali, that'd yeah. be good. And Leonie Van Eyck and Gretel Taylor have made a video work. It is also... A, a performance and it involves the Australian landscape. John Wolseley has an enormous printed woodcut and watercolour work on the back wall that he made especially for this exhibition, drawing from some earlier projects with Mulkan Wapanda up at Yakala. That 
is the list of artists. So That's excellent. It's definitely is there anything else you wanted me to? No, I think we'll just remind people that they can go to Lot 19 in Castlemaine until when does it come down? It 22nd. comes down on the yeah Sunday, the 22nd of March, and it's open Friday through till Sunday every week from uh, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in and having a chat with me, guys. No and problem. Thanks, thank you, Ali. And the artists will be minding the show, so please talk to them. them. Yeah. yeah, great idea. Salt, salt, salt in the air. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth, people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may or may not read your email on the show and may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email.